Hi, welcome to The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. I'm Dan Pallotti, your host. Glad you could be with us. The mission of Northeast Ohio's Fund for Our Economic Future is to advance economic growth that benefits all people in Northeast Ohio. Here to talk about that laudable and sometimes difficult goal is the organization's president, Bethia Burke. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Before we talk about some of the goals and how the fund goes about doing those things, give us just a little bit of background. How did the fund come into being? Sure. Um, so the fund is has been around for about 20 years, nearly 20 years now. Um, we're going into our seventh three-year phase starting next year. Um, and it came about as a collaborative of the philanthropic community uh, looking to make a difference in driving a vibrant economy for Northeast Ohio. Um, so at its inception, it was this pool of dollars from a variety of entities. Right now we have about 40 members uh, that work uh, in the in the areas that really cross any one organization's purview. So it's about the intersection of um, economic growth and economic opportunity, the overlap between creating jobs, preparing people for jobs, and giving people access to jobs. To start with a very basic question, how do we create this economy that makes things more inclusive? Is it an issue of trying to offer more educational opportunities to people who haven't had them or job training, a combination of both? What are some of the factors that come into trying to make it this a more inclusive economy? We're fond of uh, pointing out that there's no one silver bullet that's going to make um, either economic growth happen or inclusive access to that economic growth happen. Um, and our work is really about uh, the issues that that are the undercurrent of everything you see in the transactional data. Um, so what we measure in an economy are uh, the number of jobs that have been created, the capital that's been attracted to the region, uh, the level of education of our citizens. Um, but that there's a lot that happens before we get to those outcomes uh, that are the, the fundamentals of economic competitiveness. And that's where our focus is. Um, so I, I think of the work as um, like the blind man and the elephant analogy. We've got a lot of organizations who are touching one piece of the elephant, and that's really important. You need a really strong functioning transportation system. Um, you need um, organizations that are working with businesses on economic growth. Um, and that what our job is, is to see that whole elephant and look for the gaps where no one is working. So innovations in transportation or lifting up the issue of racial equity. So figuring out where those gaps are and making sure we're covering all of the issues that are, are the undercurrent to a competitive economy. You had an interesting exchange in the pages of Cranes with economist uh, James Tretko. We both had some ideas about how you thought things should go. And I, and I want to paraphrase him. Basically, he argued that the economic growth is just inherently unequal. So the notion, he said, is to just have a robust economy and then eventually all will be welcomed in. And you took a different tact. Can you talk about how you felt about that, your approach to that? Yeah, I mean, I think this idea that a rising tide lifts all boats is uh, one that a couple decades ago was quite popular, um, and that the idea that if we just had economic growth, um, that we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't need to worry about issues of inclusion because by the creation of jobs, people ultimately would get into those jobs. We know that that has not happened, and we know that ha that hasn't happened because systems are inherently unequal. Um, and so uh, when I say that, I mean, if you look at on the data side, um, we know that the difference in income and employment between black and white residents in Northeast Ohio, for example, is wide, consistent and persistent. Um, and that is the result, not just of jobs being out there or not being out there, um, but it's the difference of access to education. It's the difference. Um, it's the difference in employers' attitudes in who they hire, who gets promoted, how people are retained. So if there's a workplace culture 
um, circumstance that contributes to that. Um, there are a lot of factors that go into the outcomes that we see, and it's not just about job growth, um, but those systems of inequality. Another, another good example is the way that our economy has grown, has grown in this no growth sprawl pattern. So we have the same number of people, the same number of jobs, uh, but we use a lot more land um, this year than we used, say, 20, 30 years ago. That means the distance between people and jobs is growing um, and that that distance between people of jobs and people and jobs is uh, has grown more um, between people in lower income communities than in people in upper income communities. So it's harder to get to work which means you don't show up for work on time, which means you're less likely to get or retain your job. Um, and so if we only worry about the job, we're missing out on all those factors that make it possible for people to access work. We'll definitely touch on that because that's a very important thing here in Northeast Ohio, the issue of transportation. But I want to ask you before, though, every region has strengths and weaknesses. What are some of the strengths that make Northeast Ohio a place where the economy could flourish? And what are some of the things we struggle with? Um, lots of strengths. Um, uh, ones that people often point to um, are things like our robust, uh, robust assets in healthcare that are actually the foundation of innovation in that sector. Um, we also have um, uh, we also have industry growth in some sectors in manufacturing. We've got a, a strong manufacturing base, and we've got a split between those things that are legacy and those things that are forward looking. We have the potential and the reality of some opportunity in, in things like additive manu manufacturing, um, and we have um, this really enviable set of assets in both the, the, the people and the organizations that work on these issues, um, as well as fundamental things like other places don't have a rapid transit system. And so we have, we have existing systems and structures that can sometimes uh, be hard to keep up and maintain, but are things that other places can't build from scratch. You know, um, some of the places where we have uh, challenges are, are issues that that are confront a lot of legacy communities. So things like um, uh, we have to maintain a lot of infrastructure, which we just talked about, but um, uh, that amount of infrastructure is growing. And so we're increasing our tax burden. Um, so thinking about where and how we grow is a really important component in uh, making ourselves more competitive. Uh, we have an older population. And so thinking about not just um, the assets of our educational institutions, but whether when people are educated here, they stay is a really important question. And are we retaining good talent? So there's there's things on both sides um, and there's certainly a lot before us to work on. So you mentioned this concept of sprawl with no growth. We talked um, with Grace Colucci from NOACA when they issued the E-Neo 2050 plan. This is one of the major things they addressed, this whole issue of, you know, I might live on East 105th, but my job is in Solon and I don't have a car. So how do I get there? Um, and you, you guys decided to deal with that, the Fund for the Economic, Our Economic Future did with a plan called the Paradox Prize in 2019 to try to address some of those issues. Tell me a little bit about that plan and how things came out. Sure. Um, so we're still in the thick of it. Um, but the Paradox Prize was born out of this recognition um, that uh, we had limited ability to try new things uh, within our transportation service delivery. Uh, and that is true because of the way that funding is structured, the way that these organizations are structured, not because there aren't ideas on, on what can be done. Um, and that we were operating, we, the collective we in the region, were operating under this false pretense that you either have to own a car that's really cost prohibitive for a lot of residents, um, or you have to take a really burdensome bus commute to get to work, that these are the only two ways of getting around. Um, and that there are, uh, especially in 
I'll just say public transportation works best from density to density, and that we know that that's not where we are right now in Northeast Ohio. Um, and so figuring out whether there were things that we could put funding towards to sort of break this idea um, uh, that that you had to have a car to get a job or um, you couldn't get one. So the no car, no job, no job, no car framing of the Paradox Prize um, was born out of that notion. Uh, and that the objective really was to do a couple of things. One is to put money towards ideas that could work. So we've got eight pilots running right now. A second was to raise the issue of transportation onto the civic agenda in a way that it was understood to be a workforce and economic competitiveness issue. Um, and that's really, really important because much more so than what comes out of the eight pilots, what we really need to do is change the way we think about business location decisions, what we're incentivizing, um, how we're enabling innovation to happen in the transportation space. And that's why we made such a big deal out of the Paradox Prize is to, to give people a way of talking about this challenge um, and starting to change the policies and practices we have around that space. So we can do that in some respects via government solutions. But what about employers themselves? Do they, is it incumbent upon them at all to think to themselves, well, I am in Solon and I need employees. I need to be involved in trying to figure out a way to get transportation for them. Or is that too burdensome on some companies? Really, really important. Um, and I will say uh, that our experience going into the Paradox Prize is that a lot of employers, it just didn't surface as an issue. Um, what, we, what we saw in interactions with employers uh, was what they saw on the back end. So what um, a company owner would see is a person not showing up for work consistently on time. Uh, and that um, CEO or manager wouldn't necessarily know that that person took two buses, one was late, they missed a transfer, they had to drop a kid off at daycare. Um, the, the burden of the commute uh, that was facing that person and why that was, um, and the contributing factor of transportation to their lack of um, reliability. The company just needs a reliable worker. Um, the, the person might not, um, you know, a couple of interesting things came out of the, the early exchanges. One is uh, a lot of companies, when they interview people, they don't, they ask, can you get to work? But they don't further explore the way in which a person will get to work. Um, and the person who's being interviewed has to say yes. If, you, if you're interviewing me and you say, can you get to work? And I say, no, you don't hire me. Um, and so it's incumbent upon me to say yes and to make it happen. Um, but the visibility then of what I'm doing to get there doesn't show up. Um, and just to go on for one minute longer, we had an exchange with a with an employer uh, who we were talking about the issue with. Um, and this person said, I hear you, but nobody on in my workforce takes the bus. Everybody drives. Nobody takes the bus. It was a manufacturing facility. So, yeah, nobody takes the bus. Walked out onto a shop floor. First person he asked, he said, how did you get to work today? And that person said, I took the bus. Um, and it turned out that that person used to get a ride. Uh, the person who gave him a ride was unreliable. So he started getting up two hours before his shift to get two buses to get to work 30 minutes ahead of time because otherwise he'd be two hours late. That's four hours he's spending commuting, not upskilling, um, you know, not spending time with his family. That's, that's a big chunk of the day that his interested, engaged CEO didn't know about because there's not really a way to raise that issue with, with company leaders. Um, and so I think um, my part of our hope is, is that by elevating 
elevating what's facing people in the transportation space, it helps company leaders think about where am I sourcing people from? How are they getting here? How do I work with, say, the RTA um, to figure out if there's if there are things that I can do? And what, given my choice to locate where I located and given where workforce is, what is my role in providing benefits in um, sorting out um, uh, shift time alignment with neighboring businesses? There's a lot of things that you can do um, once you start understanding what the fundamental issue is. There's a corollary. I mean, it's not only the paradox of no job, no car, but also think to yourself, perhaps I could do something to get a job closer to where I live. I need to improve my skills, but I can't quit my job. I have two kids. Is there, does the fund do things to help sort of uh, enhance the safety net for people? A lot of people don't operate on much of a safety net. It's paycheck to paycheck, as you well know. This is a really important factor, and it's um, increasingly important as we see talent being an ever more serious issue and access to talent being an ever more serious issue for our, our economic growth. Um, I, there are um, There's a lot in your question. So one is a lot of people are working multiple jobs to make ends meet. Um, so, and they can't, to your point, take off of any one of those jobs in order to go to workforce training and upskill. Um, another is uh, the the mindset of being able to go into training uh, is one where you have to take a leap of faith. So, even if you could maybe stretch for two months, you're not sure if something's going to happen on the other side, um, and that makes it inherently risky. Uh, so, we work on a couple of things. Uh, one is thinking about the supportive services that exist in the public sector, um, how those supportive services are designed and connected to people in ways that make it more possible for them to go into training, to get into upskilling, to advance in their careers. Uh, that's a tricky and thorny issue. Um, and then another is um, uh, on the earn and learn side, uh, ways in which that bridge can happen where a person can genuinely be enrolled in a training. There's a variety of different methods for doing this, but be enrolled in a training, earn an income, um, and be able to advance in work. Athea Burke joins us. She is the president of the Fund for Our Economic Future. She's joining us today for the landscape. Athea, let's talk about the fund and its involvement in the Cleveland Innovation District project. How can that be a game changer for the region? Is it, is it still on track, and do we think it's still going to be what we hoped it was going to be? And so the Cleveland Innovation Project is the work to drive tech-based growth um, in the greater Cleveland region, and it's work across a lot of uh, organizations um, and institutions. Uh, it's 10 years, uh, 10 years on the horizon. We're one year in. Um, I'll say that it seems like we're on track, um, but also there's a long path ahead. I think that the encouraging, there's a lot of encouraging things. One that um, component that's really encouraging is the timing of the work to lay the foundation for a tech-based growth plan um, fortuitously intersects with an influx of dollars coming from the federal government to shore up the recovery. It's really important that that funding is used strategically um, and that the work that we and other partners did over the past two years to set the foundation of what needs to happen next gives us something to lift off of so that funding can be spent strategically to grow the industries of advanced manufacturing, uh, uh, health tech, and water technology. Um, so I think that to me is one of the most promising things about the Cleveland Innovation Project is the timing and the intersection with real resource that can give it lift. The pandemic obviously hit people, especially when it came to job loss. Is the Fund for Economic Future involved in any kind of projects that would perhaps help with job retraining for people who need to find new work? So our work is focused on the long-term change, um, and we're looking at the um, we're looking at the conditions that make that retraining possible. 
so these are things like uh, there is some work at the state on ISAs, uh, which are, in, um, oh, I'm going to forget what the acronym stands for, but effectively that they are loans that a person can take out um, in order to pay for tech-based training. So think if you're going into a tech elevator kind of boot camp, um, short-term training to get into a better job uh, that is repaid with future earnings. So you don't pay it back. Um, if you don't earn the income level required uh, to meet that threshold. That's the kind of work that's happening right now to figure out how we can get from um, this place of unemployment um, to one where people are using that period to actively train and get into better jobs. And then that's a systemic change because it is a new way of getting people into jobs in the long term. So a lot of other stuff going on in talent, but that's um, you know one way that we're thinking about this bridge between the unemployment and the reemployment. One of the things we hear that help to combat sprawl is this notion of job hubs. Can you talk a little bit about those, what they are and why they're important? So job hubs are uh, places of concentrated development. They have uh, multiple traded sector industries and um, they have a, you know, a baseline number of jobs. So there are these places, think of places of concentrated employment. Solon is an employment hub, a job hub. So is downtown Cleveland. So is University Circle. Uh, that these, what we have right now and have historically had, um, we're shifting, um, but we've historically had this mindset of an any job, anywhere kind of approach. We are an economy that is behind in our growth outcomes relative to many of our peer metros, um, and that that um, drive to any job, anywhere came from a good place. But what happened, as we've talked about already, is this, this result of that was this no growth sprawl that that drove jobs further and further away from people. We incentivized redevelopment in, in green fields over um, redevelopment in core places. Um, and so when you drive around and you see empty plots of land um, in, in, in really concentrated areas of activity and you wonder why they're there, it's because it actually takes a lot to get from an empty plot to a place that is uh, attractive for business. Um, manufacturing facilities are different now than they used to be. Uh, so old facilities have to be taken down or upgraded to meet new requirements. Uh, if there was an industry um, industrial purpose there before, they leave behind a brownfield that needs to be cleaned up for a future use. But that reinvestment in existing places um, and connecting to job hubs, these concentrations of employment, um, is how we get to long-term better outcomes. So people are closer to jobs, Companies are closer to each other, which has an effect of um, uh, this, this exchange effect where you grow together. Um, and uh, you can invest more strategically in things like transportation infrastructure because you're not building a new road for everybody. So that's why that's why job hubs really matter. What about for local governments? How do they benefit from job hubs? I know it's obviously employers and employees are certainly going to benefit, but are there is it good for local governments? Is it because they can spend less or, or is, it, is there some sort of benefit for them? Yeah, um, it's. Overall, really good for local governments. Uh, when we think about what costs money to local governments, uh, what is a burden? It is one of the biggest burdens is figuring out how you maintain the infrastructure um, uh, in a community. When it feels like a really good thing to bring a new business to a community because they're growing your tax base and you get to tell your residents that you've brought new jobs there. Um, but when that business leaves and leaves an empty mall or an empty plot of land, you have to maintain um, and find a new purpose for that existing use. We all share in that tax burden. And so the hardest thing to convince local governments of is that, um, is that the 
sort of the collective, um, how the collective translates into their individual communities and how they talk about those wins um, in a way that is good for residents, but that there's a place for, um, there's a place for growth and there's a, um, and that we have to figure out how we're not all fighting about the, the growth and instead we're, we're strategically growing in a way that benefits the region um, and doesn't overburden our taxes. If you're a leader within the wealth management industry in Northeast Ohio, don't miss this exclusive advertising opportunity from Crane's Content Studio Cleveland. We want to hear directly from the city's wealth management professionals on all topics critical for a holistic approach to managing one's financial portfolio. Create your own unique content or choose from a range of topics including risk management, cybersecurity, college planning, and more. Go to cranescleveland.com and click Crane's Content Studio in the top right corner to learn more. In reading some of the reports from the Fund for Economic Future. You're not, you guys aren't scared to use the word messy. I see it's going to put the report several times. And I think it's interesting. I mean, because you really are balancing and trying to help, of course, a lot of constituencies and trying to convince people of things. How do you judge success at the end of the day? I know you probably set some parameters, but how do you figure out if this is working? It's a great question. Um, what we look to is what happens with these big questions and these big issues that we tackle. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, in the early days of the fund, there was there were a lot of questions about uh, could Northeast Ohio be a friendly place for entrepreneurship and how do we change um, what was happening in entrepreneurship? There was collective energy. The fund was a big funder of uh, of Jumpstart, the organization um, responsible responsible for aggregating that work for Northeast Ohio um, and enabling the conditions uh, for entrepreneurs to connect to uh, capital, connect to the technical assistance that they need to grow. Um, we look at the outcomes of the, you know, the entrepreneur served, the results um, of, of an organization like Jumpstart, um, and we look at the system being able to perpetuate those results. So we no longer fund that organization. Uh, we work uh, with uh, the, the folks over at Jumpstart in a lot of different ways, um, but they have uh, become an entity that is uh, sustaining itself and continuing this service. So it's changed the dynamic of how we think about that work. Um, so we think about our outcomes over a really long time. Uh, that took a decade. Um, and we think about connecting to big issues. One of the big issues that we started uh, working on when I started with the fund was around adult workforce um, and uh, not just talking about uh, talent that comes out of colleges and universities, but also looking at the unemployed adult workforce and how do we better connect those people to jobs. That's another big issue that has been we've been working on for you know, a decade um, and uh, trying to change the dynamic of um, how people talk about workforce, um, what matters in workforce, um, and how do we how do we connect between the services that people need? Um, another, just one last example would be um, uh, this this idea of an equitable economy. It's something that you likely see in a lot of mission statements these days uh, for economic development organizations. That is a great thing, and a really what really matters is that we're shifting the work that we do to drive to more equitable outcomes. That is in part the result of the fund pushing that idea before that was embraced more broadly by these uh, delivery-oriented organizations uh, and trying to shift the way that we think about economic development and so those outcomes ultimately drive more equity. 
Um, so it's not the nice, tidy, uh, you know, we served uh, 100 people and 100 people got into high paying jobs, but it's really more about those fundamental system shifts that enable the longer term economic outcomes that we're looking for. That's interesting because most of us think, did I complete my tasks at the end of the day? You're saying, did I complete my tasks at the end of the decade? <laughs> and it's, I, I think it's um, laudable that our funders are committed for that long period of time. Um, it helps now that we've got a track, a track record of a lot of work um, that demonstrates the value of staying in. But that's a really hard proposition for folks, especially when these issues are so pressing and so urgent for people every day. Athea Burke, thanks so much for joining us today. Great pleasure having you with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Athea Burke is the president of the Fund for Our Economic Future. She joined us for The Landscape, a Queens Cleveland podcast. We have our producer, Cody Smith. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dan Paletta. We'll talk again soon.